I want to do a quick November birthday shout out to Julie and Jamie. I hope you're both having a wonderful birthday month and thank you so much for your support over on Patreon. Happy birthday. In 1996, a teen girl was murdered in Idaho Falls. What followed were decades of false accusations and legal confusion until genetic genealogy uncovered the truth. While it took a number of people to find justice, the entire effort was pushed along by the victim's grieving mother. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I cannot believe the end of the year is coming up so quickly. I will be releasing through Christmas Day, and then I will be taking a week or two off to recover from the 12 Days of Crime Lines. But if by chance the 12 Days of Crime Lines is not enough content for you for December, I do want to shout out my friends at Our True Crime Podcast. They also do a 12 Days of Episodes thing, and they're actually the ones who inspired me to start this last year. So they get all of the credit and all of the blame, but I do recommend checking them out. A quick reminder that I will be in Atlanta the first weekend in December for a massive live show and tickets are available. The link is in the show notes. There will be three live shows plus a meet and greet case discussion afterwards. The complete list of shows in attendance include me, obviously, Already Gone, Pretend, Murder She Told, True Crime Cases, Our True Crime Podcast, Corpus Delecti, Cult Crimes and Cabernet, True Consequences, Santa Maybe, Southern Gothic, Music City 911, and Defense Diaries. Lars from Rusty Hinges will be there as well because, well, he's my husband and he likes weekend getaways as much as anyone. With that out of the way, let's get into this week's episode. This is a case that I have been aware of for years now, after I saw it on 48 Hours, and it brought up a lot of good questions about public DNA databases. But I'm glad I didn't cover it back then when I first found out about it, because this case really took a turn with even more legal issues and questions coming into play. But even with all of that, we can't forget that the decades of legal drama that came all started with the tragic loss of a young woman. Angie Ray Dodge was born just a few days before Christmas in 1977. She loved Christmas growing up and didn't mind when the big family gathering for her birthday and Christmas were combined because she just loved having everyone around her. Angie was the fourth child of Jack and Carol Dodge and the only girl. Angie grew up in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and was a gifted student, tutoring younger children in English and math. After she graduated high school in 1995, with honors, of course, she attended Idaho State University. Angie was both compassionate and focused, and she wanted to be her own boss one day. She was also very independent, moving into her own apartment in the spring of 1996 at 18 years old. It was the second floor of a house, so not like a large apartment complex. On June 12th, a few weeks after being in her own place, Angie stopped by her parents' house to visit. It was the first time since she moved out on her own that she came by, and her mother Carol was happy to see her. 
Angie was trying to be all grown up. But she admitted that day to her mom that it was hard growing up and paying the bills and having everything fall on your shoulders. Add to that that she had recently gone through a breakup and she was just having a rough moment. Carol hugged her and Angie rested her head on her mother's shoulder until she felt better. As she pulled out of the driveway to head back to her apartment, she blew her mother a kiss. The next morning at 11 a.m. on June 13th, a woman called 911. She said she and another coworker from the local beauty supply store had gone to the apartment of Angie Dodge to check on her when she missed her work shift and wouldn't answer the phone. When they arrived, they knocked, but there was no answer. They found the front door unlocked, so they let themselves in and yelled out to Angie. They made their way to Angie's bedroom, and that's where they found blood everywhere and Angie's partially undressed body on the floor. The police arrived and began investigating the scene. There were signs that there may have been a small party or get-together at the apartment recently. There were a couple kitchen bags full of trash and several plastic cups. It would turn out that Angie did have some friends over after she left her parents' house. There were no signs of a break-in, though it did look like there was a struggle in Angie's bedroom. It was likely a short struggle, as Angie's landlord, who lived directly below her, didn't hear anything. On autopsy, it was determined Angie had been stabbed and cut 14 times, including a cut across her throat. This was clearly a sexually motivated crime as semen was found at the scene. Some sources made me think it was on her body, but then others made me think it was on her clothing. Regardless, the police had the definitive profile of the killer to the exclusion of literally everyone else. What they needed was someone to match it to. While DNA was being used to solve crimes in the mid-1990s, the full DNA databases were not so full. So the police began identifying men in the area, particularly those who knew Angie, and asking for DNA samples. I mentioned earlier that Angie and her boyfriend Christian had recently broken up, and there was some drama with that. Angie had been out shopping when she returned to her car one day to find a note left in it for her. It has been described as a poem, and the writer was essentially warning Angie to stay away from Christian. It was from Christian's ex-girlfriend. Angie and Christian had been dating for about five or six weeks at that point, and Christian said Angie broke up with him after getting the note and getting the wrong impression from it. Christian, being the most recent ex-boyfriend, was definitely someone the police wanted a DNA sample from, but he was not a match, and neither was anyone else they tested. For the first six months of the investigation, the police DNA tested many men who came on their radar. Angie's mother, Carol, distributed over 2,000 flyers herself, offering a $5,000 reward for tips. In the local paper, Carol had been openly critical of the investigation, saying that the Idaho Falls police weren't qualified to investigate a murder case like this. 
In response, the police chief's comment was really the only thing a even marginally empathetic person could say. He told the Associated Press that he understood, and anyone would think the same if it was their daughter who had been killed with no arrest. But then on January 5th, 1997, a friend of Angie's was arrested for sexually assaulting a woman in Ely, Nevada. His name was Benjamin Hobbs. Benjamin was from Idaho Falls. He knew Angie Dodge, and he was in Idaho Falls at the time of her murder. And here he was, arrested for a violent crime against a different woman. The Idaho Falls police sent investigators down to the jail in Nevada to talk to Benjamin and get a DNA sample. He denied knowing anything about Angie's death, but the police weren't about to take his word for it. Back in Idaho Falls, they started looking into other people Benjamin knew who were also connected to Angie. In that process, they brought in 20-year-old Christopher Tapp. This was not the first time Christopher's name had come up in the investigation. He was known to hang out with his friends down by the Snake River near Angie's apartment, and witnesses placed him at Angie's little gathering from the night before her body was found. But his DNA had not been a match. That didn't mean the police didn't still suspect him. Though only one male DNA profile was found, it didn't mean more people were not involved. The investigators had not ruled out that possibility yet. So the police brought Chris in on January 7th, 1997 for the first time. He denied knowing anything and he went home. He went in again on January 10th to be questioned and his parents got him a lawyer after this since it seemed like he was a suspect. The investigators then talked to Chris Tapp on January 11th, 15th, 17th, 18th, 29th, 30th, and 31st. Some of those interrogations occurred while he was in custody, because they had arrested him as an accessory after they asked him to come in on the 11th, and he didn't. So that is nine interviews total, but... He also took seven polygraphs, being told he failed them. These polygraphs will come up later, so just stick them in the back of your mind. For some reason I will never understand, even though Chris had a lawyer starting on January 10th, all of his interviews from the 15th on did not have his attorney in the room with him. Though Chris was Mirandized, he later said he didn't feel like he could refuse to talk to the police. And he told himself he was innocent, so there was nothing to lose by talking to them. Chris denied knowing anything about the murder in the early interviews, but then eventually said that Ben Hobbs had told him that he killed Angie and needed Chris's help with an alibi. But that was all Chris knew. Then on the 15th, Chris admitted he was actually at the crime scene. He said Ben went there because he was angry at Angie. He believed she had talked Ben's wife into leaving him. Chris said an argument started and Ben hit, then stabbed Angie twice. Chris said he ran away from the apartment at this point, but went back later and saw Angie in her bedroom, dead, and no one else around. As Chris started giving this little bit of information, the state offered him a deal. 
they would give him limited immunity related to what he confessed to. As long as he was truthful and didn't actively participate in the actual murder, he would be able to plead out to aiding and abetting an aggravated battery. That sounded great to Chris since they were looking to charge him with murder otherwise. But then Ben's DNA results came back and he was not a match to the killer. So Chris's story had to change again to adapt to this new information. These adapting stories are a hallmark of a false confession, but the police kept going with it anyway. The investigators told Chris there had to have been a third person at the crime scene, so Chris named another friend Jeremy. First, he said it was Jeremy's knife that was the murder weapon, but Jeremy wasn't there that night. But then he was there that night and participated in the murder, so it must be his DNA. But then at the January 29th interview, the prosecutor said the immunity deal was void because they learned Chris had lied. The DNA didn't match Jeremy either. In between these interviews, like I said, Chris was taking polygraph tests. He took one on January 29th and then asked to go to Angie's apartment. When they took him there, according to the legal documents I have, his attorney, quote, declined to accompany Tap and the officers, end quote. His attorney, knowing full well his client was a suspect in a murder, and a plea deal had just been pulled from the table, let the police take his client to the murder scene without him. Chris Tapp never had a chance here. And as for why he kept cooperating, it's because he trusted the police. It's just like we saw in the Peter Riley interrogations back in the Barbara Gibbons episode from earlier this year. The investigators convinced him that he may have repressed the memories of the crime due to trauma and that he failed the lie detector because his subconscious knew he was involved. The polygraph to Chris Tapp and Peter Riley and who knows how many other young and unsophisticated suspects was practically a mind-reading machine. At the crime scene, Chris's story changed again, and this time he admitted to having held Angie's arms down while she was being attacked. It was still Ben there, but it wasn't Jeremy this time, but rather a man named Mike, whose last name was unknown, but Chris was 100% sure his first name was Mike. The next day on the 30th, Chris was charged as an accessory, interviewed two more times, and then charged on February 3rd on charges of rape and first-degree murder. So what did they have on Christopher Tapp? Well, they had no physical evidence, and they had at least six different stories he told over three weeks, and the state picked the one they thought fit their theory of the crime the best. And I say the best because I don't mean any of his stories matched the evidence perfectly. And in some instances, there are some pretty glaring errors. For example, the time of death. Chris put the murder at 1 a.m., which was extremely unlikely. The Emmy had left the time of death wide open from the last time Angie was seen alive at 12.30 a.m. 
until right before her friends found her in the morning. But there was some circumstantial evidence that pointed to the killing happening much later than 1 a.m. Angie had been with her friends until around 12.30, and the autopsy found that her bladder was very full. Since she was attacked in her bedroom, it seemed likely Angie had been murdered after she had been in bed. And for her bladder to be full, she likely had been sleeping for a length of time, certainly not just 15 to 30 minutes. But the state didn't let these things get in the way, and they took this to trial. Chris Tapp pleaded not guilty, and at his trial in the spring of 1998, his attorney argued that his confession was coerced. It was the strongest piece of evidence against him. It was pretty much the entire case. And his trial attorney did manage to get some of the statements thrown out. But the most incriminating statements were still allowed in. Pretty much the only other piece of evidence against Chris was a woman who said she heard Chris confess to the murder while they were both at a party. This was all the jury needed to convict Chris of first-degree murder, rape, and the use of a deadly weapon in the commission of a felony. I do want to note that the woman who heard the confession at the party later recanted and accused the police of putting undue pressure on her, threatening to charge her with drug offenses if she didn't testify. In reality, she didn't even know Chris Tapp, but it would take many years for that to come out. At sentencing, the state argued for the death penalty, but Chris was given life in prison with parole eligibility after 30 years. Carol Dodge, Angie's mother, couldn't believe that Chris was just going to go down for the crime alone. At this point, why not just name the real person who was with him, the man who contributed to the DNA? Carol felt like this may have been a step towards justice, but it was an incomplete one at best. So Carol kept after the police to find the source of the DNA. She practically became a DNA expert herself, keeping up on the latest resources and technology in the event it would one day become useful in Angie's case. In 2009, 11 years after Chris Tapp was convicted, the DNA from the scene was entered into CODIS, the national database, but they did not get a hit. A few years after that, Carol reached out to a DNA expert in Idaho about what could be done with the DNA in Angie's case. Dr. Greg Hampikian had already heard about this case because Chris Tapp had written to him from prison. In addition to being a leading forensic expert in the United States, Dr. Hampikian was the founder of the Idaho Innocence Project. Those who followed the Amanda Knox legal battle closely may recognize his name because he was her DNA expert. With both the victim's mother and the convicted killer asking for help, Dr. Hampikian assigned an intern to do some preliminary research into this case. The confession tapes were what convicted Chris, so that's where she started. After viewing hours of these tapes, she called Dr. Hampikian and said she believed Chris was innocent. Not only were many of Chris's details of the crime inconsistent with the evidence, the things he got right 
were things the police said to him. Chris basically said nothing that the police hadn't said to him first. And by fed to him, I want to give you an example because this was literal. The interrogator said, quote, you held Angie down while she got cut. And then he said, you held Angie down while she got. And then Chris Tapp finished the sentence with cut. It was like how you prompt a toddler to talk. Carol Dodge at this stage was not entirely convinced of Chris's innocence like the Innocence Project was, but she did believe they were on the right track because now they had someone focused on finding out who left that DNA. But Carol's view on Chris's guilt did change in 2013. A journalist had gotten Chris's interrogation tapes years before through a FOIA request and gave them to Carol. You have to imagine how hard it would be to watch those tapes if you believed it was someone recounting your child's last violent moments on this earth. Carol did not want to go through that, so the tape sat there for a while. She finally decided to sit down and watch them, and she saw what the Innocence Project had seen and why they took the case. And then Carol Dodge did what Carol Dodge always did. She didn't just observe this information or accept it. She called Stephen Drizzen at Northwestern University because he was a leading expert in false confessions. He agreed to look at the case pro bono and published a report in 2014 saying the confession was coerced. He had taken a look at something not seen by the jury, the recorded polygraph examinations. Because the content of the polygraph examinations were not admissible in court, no one saw these. During these polygraph interviews, which would occur in between the interrogations, the investigators would give Chris even more information on the case, but they would also do things they didn't do on the official recordings that the jury would see, things like threatening him with the death penalty. So now Chris has another expert in his corner, and his post-conviction appeal had the support of many people, including the victim's mother. Carol went public with her belief that the wrong man had been convicted of her daughter's murder, and this would be the first time in the U.S. that the victim's family worked with the Innocence Project to free the convicted. Chris's legal team was pushing the state to test as much of the DNA evidence as possible and to continue looking for the source of the DNA they had. And in 2014, the police decided to try a new technique with the DNA, familial DNA, which we now refer to as genetic genealogy or forensic genealogy. Here's the thing, though. Idaho does not allow familial searches in their criminal database, so the police could not use their own data to look for relatives of the killer. But there was no prohibition on using a different database, and at the time, Ancestry.com's DNA database was public. The police uploaded the DNA into the system and got a lead to someone who appeared to be closely related to the killer. Using that information, they got a warrant to get Ancestry to reveal the name of the source of that DNA. It came back to Michael Usry Sr., a man living in Jackson, Mississippi, who had entered his DNA as part of a family research project at his church. 
In looking into several leads from his family tree, the investigators zeroed in on his son, Mike Jr. Mike looked like a promising person of interest for a few reasons. For one thing, the DNA link. For another, his name was Mike, and that was in line with one of Chris's many stories about who was involved. In checking out his social media, they noticed that he had friends in Idaho and that his sisters had gone to college in the nearby town of Rexburg. Beyond that, they saw that he was a filmmaker living in New Orleans, and his films were dark. He made crime horror movies, and one of them stood out. In 2010, he produced a short film called Murderbilia, about a man who collected mementos from murders and was looking for a specific item related to the murder of a young woman, a young woman who was stabbed to death like Angie Dodge. When the police made contact with Mike, they initially said they wanted to talk to him about a hit and run. But when he met up with them, he started getting asked if he had ever been to Idaho. Mike thought about it and remembered that he had taken a trip there when he was 19. He didn't remember ever being in Idaho Falls specifically, but the investigators mapped the route he claimed he took, and he would have had to drive through the city. This put him in Idaho in vaguely the right time frame, and obviously if he killed someone, he probably wouldn't be completely honest about when he was there. After they questioned Mike for a bit and him having really no idea what was going on, they handed him a warrant for his DNA. All they would say was that it was a high-profile murder out of Idaho Falls and that he was a suspect. They took Mike's DNA and sent him home to wait on the results. He said the month between the sample being taken and the results were torturous. He knew he hadn't killed anyone. But he imagined he was being followed by the police. Maybe they had tapped his phone. Maybe they were watching his online activity. Maybe they were quietly interviewing people in his life, putting a cloud of suspicion over him. I know I personally would be wondering about lab procedures and the possibility of cross-contamination, or maybe worse, I'd get a Fred Zane or an Annie Ducan or a Joyce Gilchrist who all worked in forensic labs and falsified evidence. I should probably do an episode on all three of them in the future, but fortunately in this case, Mike didn't deal with any of this. A month after his DNA was taken, he got an email saying he was not a match. Mike looked at the probable cause in the warrant for his DNA, and he realized that this all went back to his father doing genealogy work. Mike hadn't voluntarily given his DNA to any database, and he was angry that Ancestry just gave the police's father's name for an investigation, and he was concerned with people's right to privacy. He became a suspect in a murder because his father had submitted his DNA somewhere. Ancestry, for what it's worth, made the public database private after this case. While they will still comply with court orders, the police can't just search their database as an investigative tool, which means it's nearly impossible for them to get the probable cause to issue a court order to Ancestry. They have to use either a criminal database in jurisdictions where it is allowed or a public one like GEDmatch. 
This is, as far as I can tell, the only case where Ancestry turned over user information like this. Though I can't say that for certain because we only know about this case because it went wrong. Who knows if there are cases out there where they did get the right guy from Ancestry information and it was just never made public. It's a question mark. Another thing Mike learned as he was looking into the issues on his side of this was that the murder they were looking into was that of Angie Dodge. He wanted to make a documentary about the privacy issues surrounding DNA databases and familial DNA, and he reached out to Angie's family for comment. He was surprised when Carol was interested in talking to him, but he was only surprised because he didn't know Carol yet. Carol had been on a mission to find her daughter's killer, and while Mike was not him, it was likely someone related to him. Carol wanted to talk to Mike because she wanted his family tree. Over the time they spent together, Mike and Carol became close, and Mike soon became more focused on Carol's inspiring search for Angie's killer, and he too wanted to help get justice for Angie. And that meant getting justice for the wrongfully convicted Chris Tapp. Chris's appeals up to this point had not been successful, but with Carol and the Innocence Project being so public about things, they hoped they would get somewhere with his new post-conviction relief filing. And he did. While waiting on his hearing, the county prosecutor offered Chris a deal. If he would drop his appeal, he would be immediately paroled. However, he would remain convicted of the rape and the murder of Angie Dodge and be on parole for 10 years. After spending 20 years in prison for something he did not do, Chris was ready to do pretty much anything to get out. But he still wanted to prove his innocence, and the only way to do that was to continue his post-conviction relief process. He turned down the plea deal because he did not want to drop his appeal. So then the state came back with a new deal. They would drop the rape conviction entirely. The murder conviction would stand, but his sentence would be reduced to time serve. So not parole, but a full release. And should the real killer ever be found and there was no link to Chris Tapp, he could be exonerated. This time, Chris weighed his options and decided he wasn't going to take his chance with the appellate court. He took the deal, and he was released from prison in March 2017, publicly thanking Carol from the courthouse steps because he knew she was a big part of how he got out of prison. She was the one who got the attention of all of the experts who helped him. Chris wasn't totally free with the conviction still standing, but he knew it was better to be home, and he had faith that Angie's killer would be found. And the Innocence Project was not dropping the case either just because their client was out and the appeal was no longer pending. They were going to keep working to clear Chris's name completely and find justice for Angie. They decided to take another shot at familial DNA. Though it had led them astray before, the full forensic genealogy that has become so well-known in years has provided more hope. Rather than just finding a few relatives and testing them, this genetic or forensic genealogy did a lot more investigative work to find potential 
matches. In 2018, Cece Moore at Parabon Labs was contacted in the hope she could assist. She took a quick look at the case and thought the DNA may be too degraded to work with, so she passed. But then Carol contacted her personally with a plea for help to get justice for Angie, and in the fall of 2018, this worked. Parabon took the case. And this was a process. Using GEDmatch, they first identified the great-great-grandparents of the killer, and a large family tree was built out from there. For what it's worth, they did find that a direct ancestor had the last name Usri, so it looked like the killer was likely related to Mike Usri, though he spelled and pronounced his last name a little differently 150 years later. It was unlikely that Mike or anyone in his family would know the killer, though, because the connection made them something like seventh cousins. But working down this family tree, Parabon had the names of six living men who could be the source of the DNA. They identified the most likely one, covertly got his DNA, and compared it. And not only was it not a match, it proved that it was not along that line at all and effectively ruled out the other five all at once. But genealogists have to think outside of what is just in the records. They considered if there was possibly a son not known about. So they looked more closely at the family tree, and they found that one man had a short-lived marriage, and that his wife was only 16 when they got married. Though the marriage did not appear to have produced any children, most people at that time did not get married at 16 unless they were pregnant. So they decided to look into the ex-wife and see if she had any children. They found her mother's obituary in some little library in Missouri, and it listed two grandchildren. One was female, and the other was a man named Brian Drips. In looking into Brian Drips more, they found that his age lined up with being born during the first marriage. His mother later married a man with the surname Drips, and that's when Brian started using that last name as well. They also found that Brian didn't just live in Idaho Falls at the time of the murder, but he lived across the street from Angie. When the name was turned over to the police, they found it in their files. He was never a suspect or person of interest, but he was questioned as a potential witness during the routine canvassing of the neighborhood. After Parabon turned over his name, the investigators tracked Brian down and found that he was living out in Caldwell, Idaho, about five hours across the state from Idaho Falls. The police followed him around in May 2019 to covertly obtain his DNA. Fortunately for them, Brian was a smoker and he liked to toss his cigarette butts out of his car window. They managed to retrieve one by running out into traffic after it. The cigarette butt was sent to the lab. Knowing how important this case was, even though it was a cold case, they bumped it to the top of the priority list and worked over the weekend on it. The DNA comparison was a match to the killer after 23 years of looking. Investigators then followed Brian Drips and arrested him as he got out of his car to go into the bank. He agreed to talk to the police, 
And pretty much as soon as they showed him the DNA evidence, he asked if he could smoke. He then told them that they would want to get what he had to say on tape. Brian then gave a full confession. And unlike the one Christopher Tapp gave, this one was not prompted by the police and it didn't change. After Brian's arrest and his confession, which said Christopher Tapp was not involved, the Innocence Project pushed for Chris to be fully exonerated, and a judge found him actually innocent in July 2019. The state of Idaho paid him $1.2 million in wrongful conviction compensation, money that will help him set up his new life post-prison, but really no amount of money can give him back the 20 years he lost. Brian Drips pleaded guilty in early 2021 and told the courts what happened. He said he was high on cocaine and drunk when he entered Angie's apartment. He admitted he brought a knife to threaten Angie with, and he did intend to rape her. But he said he never planned to kill her. He didn't remember everything that happened, but he took responsibility for what he did. His attorney said that Brian Drips believed that his chronic poor health and life circumstances after the murder were God's way of punishing him. And I find that absolutely ridiculous. Think of all the things you did from when you were around 19 or 20 until your early 40s. The romantic partners, the children, the jobs, the good times with friends, the traveling, even with chronic health issues. Imagine all the things Brian Drips got to do that he took away from Angie Dodge, who was killed at 18, and from Chris Tapp, 20 years old when he was arrested and in his early 40s before he was released from prison. People were certainly punished for Brian Drip's choices, but not for one second do I believe it was him. Until, of course, his arrest. Though his attorney said Brian felt horribly about what he did and was remorseful, the state pointed out that he didn't feel badly enough to come forward for 23 years. He woke up every morning with the knowledge that Chris Tapp was wrongfully convicted, and he alone had the power to end it. He didn't feel badly enough to take accountability until he was cornered. The plea deal that Brian Drips made in this case included a binding sentencing agreement. It was for a life sentence with parole eligibility after 20 years. And should there be enough space for him, Brian would spend his time incarcerated in a special medical unit. This sentence, given that Brian was 55 years old at the time and in poor health, means he is unlikely to be a free man again. Carol Dodge had worked so hard to find justice for her daughter, which led to her teaming up with a man who was a suspect in the case and another who was convicted for it. She turned into an investigator herself, and that might be why Brian Drips being identified as the killer was shocking to Carol. You see, Carol had identified him years ago as someone who should have been DNA tested, in part due to his proximity to Angie's apartment, and the police told her to let them do their jobs. And Carol did that. She let the police do their job, but it didn't mean she was going to sit back and wait. And it's a good thing she didn't, because she has had a hand 
in every step of this process that led to justice. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 